Well, welcome to FinTech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, I have Minaz Sundarji. He's Executive Vice President of Zaffin. Zaffin is a company that services banks around the world by helping them enable customer-centric experiences and providing recommendations to those consumers digitally. And with that, here's my interview with Minaz. Hello, Minaz. Hey, Jason. How are you today? Good. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks. Thanks for having me today. Really appreciate it. So, Minaz Nuji of uh, Zaffin. Tell us about Zaffin. So Zafin is a financial technology provider focusing on product and pricing solutions to enable financial institutions to become more customer-centric in their in their way of, and approach. Oh, you use the buzzword of customer-centric. <laughs> I love it. I got to tell you, it stopped happening, but for the better point of a, a part of like two years, all I heard was everybody talk about customer-centric and how yeah. the unique opportunity was no one has ever built anything customer-centric. I'm just like, really? You think no one's ever tried to build something customer-centric? <laughs> like, really? And then it, you'd ask people to describe what it was and they'd be like, oh, you know, more centered on the customer. I'm like, what does that mean? <laughs> and they go nowhere. In fact, there was a Dilbert comic that basically had the entire, like, we should be more customer-centric. And they're like, what does that mean? Well, we should figure out how to focus on the more so we can sell them more stuff. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Uh, All right. So I love it. Sorry, that's a side note. All right. So you guys go in to major financial institutions and you essentially help them change the way they do stuff. Tell me about what led to the creation of the firm before we get into how it is you do what you do and basically like just the story of it. Sure. So I mean, Zappin started about, well, the concept started about back in 2002, right? And it wasn't meant to be in the financial services space. We're looking at telco and a whole um, 3G space. And, uh, and so you started in the harder area with more concentration and decided to go to the slightly less, more difficult area? Okay. <laughs> and we, well, as we went through that journey and we spoke to a lot of, uh, we ended up looking at financial institutions because we said, hey, there seems to be a, a so synergy where telcos and this 3G space and FIs can work together. No, realize there's a big problem in the financial space where how they manage your products, how they price their customers, how they bill for their services was in some cases a nightmare and manual legacy, a lot of challenges, right? So we said, oh, let's let's look into the space. So we spoke to hundreds of institutions. And finally, we got a, a first opportunity in India out of a bank called HDFC. And they were thinking of replacing the core banking system. So when you spoke with them, they said, look, we have this issue. We want to personalize the pricing that we give to our customers for our products, right? Based on their geographical location, based on the relationship, we really want to focus on personalizing that experience. And they told us, well, if you can deliver something to us within four months, you have the contract. Until then, we don't pay you a single penny and you have the deal. Otherwise, we're going to go this massive endeavor of replacing a core and bolting things on to change it. Unfortunately, we were able to deliver. We got our first client and they didn't replace their core banking system. We actually, uh, they augmented their existing core banks or legacy system with us and went ahead and grew the business. Later on in life, they did change it, but we were still integral in terms of how they manage their products and their pricing. We actually de-risked when they migrated their core bank system from the legacy to the new one because all of the pricing determination, the computations, the product management was happening in Zafin now so that it removes a lot of dependency and changes you have to make uh, when you are cutting over and migrating to new core banking system, right? So that was our journey. We went into Europe. We grew in Europe, Middle East, Africa, a bit of in Africa, Asia, and then we came to North America. So it's uh, the journey was uh, somewhat uh, started outside of North America, even though we are a Canadian company uh, with Canadian founders. It came back to, to our part of the world. And over the last five years, I'd say uh, Canada, US has been growing, uh, even Europe, rapidly for us. And it, there's a huge need for what we do to help institutions improve uh, how they service their customers. I love it. I love it. They give you an opportunity to basically prove it and didn't give you a penny until you're dead. Uh, <laughs> that's that's, <laughs> the that's story a no-risk proposition for Yeah. It's like, oh, really? You think you can do it? Great. Prove it. If you can, you get the deal. If not, you know, what? we don't care. That, that's one way to go about it. 
So no surprise that the Canadian Bank were not the first ones to give you an opportunity. Sorry, I always have to take a stab when I have an opportunity. So let's talk about what it is you guys do. So I mean, it's a pretty loaded question Question looking at your platform, right? Like right. from what the looks of it is you are kind of a, for lack of a better term, next best action engine that sits over top of their banking system in between the client and their offering. Does that sound about right? That's right. A bit of a middleware, right? So we, we sit between their, their product processes and systems and their client channels, right? Uh, for the most part, we do have a one channel, uh, channel facing application, but for the most part, we sit between that. And so what we do is we actually take, get rid of the spaghetti web that exists in it. And we simplify that interaction and create a consistent interaction between the customer and what's offered to them and how their service from a product perspective, uh, pricing perspective, incentivization perspective, uh, relationship perspective, right? So well, we do a couple of things. Where we are managing product information, we determine what product is offered to which customers, right? So there is no mis-selling happening. People get what they're eligible for, what is relevant for them based on their relationship or their profile and so on. And then the second aspect of the journey is as they decide to uh, subscribe to services and products from financial institutions, we personalize their pricing. So that means what price point do you get a particular product or service at, right? Do you get incentivized for doing more business with the bank or exhibiting certain patterns or interact uh, behaviors? So we monitor all that data. So we get like customer information, account balances, transactions, pretty much any information the institution wants to use to determine how they incentivize and price their customers. Their pricing being the lever, right? And pricing mm-hmm. could be fees, rates, benefits in the forms of cash back, bonus interest, uh, points, right, uh, merchandise, et cetera. So pretty much anything that you want to do to manage and maintain and incentivize behaviors to create that holistic and deeper relationship that you want with your with your end customers. I use the next buzzword, holistic. So I mean, end of the day, I'm guessing you're going into these places and you're finding this data, finding this data to be highly siloed, right? I mean, how many banks have you actually started with from day one that had a true 360 picture of what the client looked like? None. <laughs> because <laughs> but, yeah, well, you noticed Sorry. that was a setup question. Um, you know, like I, I you know, no. it, this all sounds great in concept, but I mean, how many different legacy COBOL systems were you dealing with to try to basically create this unified view? You know, in the early stages, there'd be like, it could be handful, maybe more, right? Quite a few in some cases. Now, data is becoming a lot easier and better accessible because there's been more technology and innovation, even in banking, where they're getting a lot of the data and putting in a lake or putting on a, on a bus as an example. So access mm-hmm. to data is becoming a bit easier than it was in the past, right? So we didn't have to do a lot of this point-to-point integrations anymore, right? And I think that's improving access to data. So what they're doing now, and it's just, this has been a smart move and it'll take them time is they're taking what's available from a data perspective in these silo systems and putting it at sort of a higher level so that everybody on any system or application wants to access the data doesn't have to go and touch a very old legacy risky so you can break tomorrow application like a cobalt system um, or have to re-engineer that and externalize a lot of these functions out of them so that over time when you replace them the replacement becomes easier faster riskier, right? So that's where we play. So it's changed a lot from what we started. I'm not saying it's perfect. There's a lot of room for improvement and it's only going to get better, right? And in some markets, they haven't had a choice because they understand we talk about open banking or accessing data to third parties to use is driving them to make sure that access to the data access is easier, faster. And obviously, economically, I mean, in wonderful some countries markets, where they've been forced free. to adopt open banking is what you're saying, right? <laughs> not, not here. Sorry. Got that's right. No, 
I mean, I, you know, everybody has a journey. I'm hoping that the Canadian market gets there, even the U.S. market gets there soon, because I think it'll be good for the customer, right? And it'll be good for the institutions because they will drive competition. But with competition, like we have in our space, it drives you to become better. Otherwise, you mm-hmm. won't survive, right? And so I think it's a good thing. Uh, people can embrace it and, and, and leverage it. So you go in, you deal with a ton of solid systems, and you basically put together a 360 view for the probably the first time of these clients and what it is they bought. Now we've talked about how you want to incentivize and serve up other products to them and do so while doing it in a discounted way to reflect the overall value of that client. How many of these institutions had actually worked out like these pricing mechanisms yet? Or were they all just like ad hoc promotional things? Like did anyone come up with a master strategy yet? I think there are a few, I wouldn't say there's many, that actually thought about the long-term vision of what they want to be as a bank. There are some that say, look, we want to be the digital bank of the future. We want to personalize and incentivize experience. And we want to treat the customer as one, regardless of what channel they come from. And we want to look at their relationship and not just sell them more, but to service them better and say, look, the, the better the relationship you have with us, the more you get in return. And not saying that's because they want to make more money only, but it's because they want to tell the customer, look, we value your relationship that you have. And because we have that relationship, we will treat you differently and we will personalize it for you. A lot of it happens in the corporate commercial space. If you go to corporate commercial bank, a lot of the arrangements are individualized and negotiated. That doesn't happen in the consumer mass software space, right? I'm not saying it should necessarily, but I think it needs to be more personalized based on what you bring to the table. And I think that there are people and organizations that are trying to get there. Maybe they sometimes you're boxed into your mindset based on what you have available to you on your table. And that's why you don't think outside the box. Maybe that was irrational. But I think some have made that progress. Some haven't, some need to, but some have, right? And I'll use a corollary for this of how difficult this can be. It sounds easy enough. I get more, therefore I should get some sort of like benefit. But every product line has its own risks to the business. Every product line has its own margins. Every product line has its own costs. And kind of trying to put that into one general framework is difficult. The example I'll use is simply a buddy of mine who has a wholesale foods company. He can't just go in there and say, I'll give you 10% off everything because 10% may destroy 100% of his margin on one or two types of products. So I remember looking at his price book and it was just the most convoluted thing I've ever seen. But he's like, what am I supposed to do? He goes, if I, you know, if this person buys, for example, tremendous amount of coffee off me, the margins on that are enormous. But if that person spends the same amount of money with me on, say, this kind of dry good, the margin on that is puny. I can't look at volume of dollars spent with me as a metric for how I discount. It has to be after margins. So when you think about the number of areas a financial institution must touch, right? I mean, maybe not as much as, as this food wholesaler guy, but various different types of banking services, deposit services, saving services, credit. Like this is not a this is not a small thing to figure out. Like, how did you even start tackling these things? I mean, I think the the key thing is, and I think institutions are doing this more, financial institutions are doing this more. So they're actually getting organized where they actually have a head of customer. So head of segment is an example. And what these individuals are doing, and this is what we promote and we speak to them about, is that when they look at a customer, right? Yes, it's very difficult to figure out the profitability of the customer overall, right? Because you may not have the cost. And you may have some high-level margins. But the reality is that when you start creating these customer-centric propositions, whether it's packages or bundles or looking at the behavior across deposit and credit, it's not it's necessarily not that difficult for what you do today to figure out, you know, what would that look like? What would that value proposition look like? So for example, when interest rates are falling dramatically. If you give an additional 25 basis points or 50 basis points in an account, people want to save, they'll give you the money. But if you counter that giveaway, that incentive, the amount, you'll know exactly what you'll be giving away for every thousands of dollars that you in that margin. And you say, 
for that, for me to earn that back as a business, as a business, I need to generate revenue elsewhere. So where can I generate revenue? Is it through lending? Is it through credit card spend? Where is it? Investment, et cetera. So then what you got to figure out is that, hey, if a customer uh, usually spent on a credit card and now they spend a thousand more on my credit card, can I use that incremental spend to pay for that 50 basis points as an example? And that's how you build the business case. I think more and more institutions are looking at it from that perspective. The challenge, like you said in the past, has been incentivization of business lines and divisions have always been within, hey, deposit, within card, within lending as an example. Those mm-hmm. silos are breaking because banks are realizing that, one, they're not going to make more money if they keep operating like that. Two, that if they look at things more holistically, they will make more money. I'll give you a real example, not in the financial service industry. You look at McDonald's. And it's, it's an old example where people don't think to harness what's been happening mm-hmm. in other industries. McDonald's came up with their value meal many years ago. When they came up with their value meal, there were a lot of people within McDonald's. I said, this is going to be bad for business. We're going to lose money because now you're selling things at a cheaper price when you're packaging them together versus selling them individually. What ended up really happening is actually McDonald's sold more. Their margins didn't get worse. They got better because the economies of yep. skills picked in. And so that whole mindset changed. And Value meal has become staple in not only McDonald's, but many other food chain businesses today. And so I think that's, if you start looking at it from that perspective, then you make changes, you'll get better and you'll improve. But, but Apple's sense, doing right? it now. Because right? the incremental, I mean, the thing is, it's the old thing about the hardest sales, the first one, getting them in right. the door and getting the first in the open the wallet the first time. Now that you're providing with one service, it's easier for them to, now that you have the trust of that one service, right. it's easier to sell the second service and so on and so on. There's a well-known concept in, in my business, financial advisory, about putting the fence around a client. And the way you do that is the more products you have or the more solutions a client has with you, the less likely they are to leave. It's also a line of thinking that can be perverted as Wells Fargo did with their Eight is Great campaign, which ended up driving a lot of fictitious accounts. Sometimes you just have to, a concept can be great, but anything can be, can be changed for the worse. So Totally get where you're coming from on that. It's, you know, the incremental sale, even if giving up margin is a sale you wouldn't have had otherwise. So you may as well do it. And it's going to, you know, like McDonald's, I think the back to myself as a kid going in and not knowing what the value meal was and ordering each of the things individually and wondering why it was so bloody expensive. And then the person was kind of to say, no, 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 you wanted a value meal. And they went back. It's like, wow, that was, that was 60% of the cost. That's, that's a lot better. So yeah, it definitely is going to drive incentive. So they're starting to figure this out. Now this brings up uh, one of the key regulatory questions going to come up about this because I'm sure a number of people in Canada in my business are shuddering at the thought of this. That's the concept of tied selling. There are different countries that, depending on legislation, will limit the things that you can cross-sell or sell or discount based on a condition of having something else. So for instance, anytime, and this ha- while it's not permittable in Canada, it happens all the time. We get I even coach my clients to watch out for it. They'll go in to negotiate their mortgage and they'll get the best possible rate they possibly can, but then they get a call that says, oh, by the way, if you move your RSPs here, I can drop, drop them the 50 basis points off, right? Like they're doing the things, they're not putting in writing. They'll never put it in writing because I always tell them to get it in writing, but they're doing something they're not supposed to. Regardless if that's right or wrong, it doesn't really matter. The point is, is that there are restrictions on these things. I take it you've had to deal with these kinds of restrictions around the world. How has that worked out in your experience? Yeah, I mean, I think every institution understands those restrictions and, and a lot of them won't do that, right? So they don't do that. They, they, they won't break regulation. So we provide the technology to enable them to do many different things, right? But their business strategy and how they operate as a business is still up to them. So I agree with you. I've seen a lot of that. But a lot of them have also thought through things, right? So in, in some markets, right, packaging things together so you get more within product or service 
is opening up, right? And in some cases, they're going beyond financial services, right? So they're trying to look mm-hmm. at the experience of a customer and what they're looking to do in their life journey as an example. So yeah, there are those nuances that they run into, but I think that a lot of them are trying to ensure that those things don't happen. And so that's where the whole deterministic factor of what you give incentives on and how you package things together is systematically driven rather than individually driven, right? So there's no more someone I'm going to call you and tell you, hey, if you have an RFP with us, then I'll give you the rate. No, it shouldn't be that way. Your rate determination for your mortgage is based on specific factors that are permittable by law and by the institutions to price that customer, right? Yeah. Which in some I mean, cases, I think the counterpoint happen. to that, the counterpoint to that is that just incentivizes anyone who's dealing with those restrictions who is turning a blind eye to them on a nudge, nudge winking basis with their employees to simply basically fight that regulation even harder now, because there will be, I mean, I don't know what, to what degree tide selling that was illegal in Canada, for example, boosted profitability, but the elimination of it through a digital platform that has to be compliant is going to have some impact, right? Now that said, maybe the upside and everything you do legally is sufficient to get past that. But I do think a solution like yours, if it got to the full ultimate conclusion of it, is only going to lead them to say, okay, now that we've saturated this, we need to sell more. And therefore, these tight selling things are in the way. But I think this this notion of selling more is has to change to servicing, servicing more. I agree. Servicing better. Because look, when I want to buy a home, it's not just buying a home. It's not just getting a mortgage. I have to go through a lot of different things in life. Now, whether it's legal services, uh, moving, cable, utilities, et cetera. And I'm not saying banks should necessarily always provide those things, but they could be a forum or a catalyst through which, or a marketplace through which they can service their customers, not sell them, maybe be a trusted advisor, because a lot of people do trust banks still today, right? If you look at the amount of savings that are put into financial institutions versus smaller fintech startups, there is a big difference. Well, here's the trust, thing. Right? Here's the thing. They trust them, but they don't like them. You look at the MPS <laughs> scores, and yeah. I may see things on forums like, should I put money into EQ Bank? Is it safe? Like, should I put money into this challenger bank? You know, am I safe? Which is, in my mind, ridiculous because it's regulation that creates safety, not size. But when you score people on how much they enjoy dealing with the different institutions, the challenger banks just destroy any traditional line competitor, like to the point where it's like they're in a completely different race. I think I agree with you. The the entire sales aspect or most centric mentality of it needs to go away because at the end of the day, it really, uh, like I look at it with even my own practice. I don't try to sell anything. I try to enable people's lives. And the sales that happen for it are based, if it happened through the business, are basically a byproduct of enabling their life to be secure, protected, go the way, the way they want to go. But I am not someone who has to deal with the pressures of quarterly numbers and hitting dividend targets. I really do wonder how you, in a large publicly traded corporation, how you basically re-engineer the incentive structure as to be one that is longer-term nurturing in nature versus short-term target hitting in nature. If you look at the e-commerce space, you look at some of the other firms that are in that market, right? They focus on their customer. They focus on servicing their customer better. Revenues do come. Yes, they have targets to meet. But the reason they're able to exceed those targets and do better and better every quarter after quarter is because they focus on servicing the customer. The customer is at the heart, right? It's not what you, the product, right? I mean, what you sell in the market is only if someone needs it or wants it. And they'll yeah. only buy from you, like you said, if they like you or if they feel that they're getting value from you. So I think that there is an opportunity there to learn from others and improve, right? It's like not everybody knows it all. So sometimes you have to look outside to see what you can do to get better. I mean, Apple's a prime example, right? They innovated a lot, but they also copied a lot and they got just did it better than someone else did. I mean, I I think also that that is absolutely true, but there's also something to be said about stage of life cycle of a business altogether, right? Apple was able to take that focus because they were losing and then they basically won because of it, right? And they're going to continue to do that. But I think you get into these industries that have been established for hundreds of years, not thousands, and essentially taking that shift in focus 
are there enough unbanked people with money that this is actually going to lead to that kind of conclusion? Now, don't get me wrong. I think you're absolutely right from a strategic advantage for a unique player, someone coming into the market and saying, I'm going to take this attitude. I have nothing to lose. And therefore, I'm going to roll the dice and see what comes of it, like the challenger banks. And they're doing it. They're winning it on experience. They're not winning it on trust yet, but that is something that takes time right? Like anything else, right? The more and more people who move over there, the more and more people are going to choose to move over there. So you have that opportunity. But as for the traditional companies, right, being able to modify their their attitudes in that direction, I'm highly skeptical. That's the challenge. And as I said to you earlier, I'll be off air. And as I say all the time is, to me, the single biggest open field blue ocean I see in any, and especially in this country, but in most countries that have not adopted open banking systems is for one traditional line bank to basically say, this is the future. I am going to embrace this with both arms and I'm going to create like a country leading banking as a platform service. And the amount of business they would garner from that from third parties would just be staggering because, and they would have such an open, and the technology industries, as we've seen, if you get far enough ahead, it's over. Who's catching AWS today? No one, right? You're going to need a paradigm changing technology that AWS just cannot move on because they're so legacy to beat them. And they like concentration and oligopolies. Well, this is a bigger opportunity for even larger oligopoly, in my opinion. But I think they should be worried not only about the challenger banks, but I think they should worry about some of the other big tech companies that are encroaching the space. You see that slowly and very, very uh, smartly the encroachments happen, whether it's Apple's Apple's card, whether it's Google with their new Flex account, uh, although they partner with the with City and and so and another institution out in the US. Or you look at like like we talk Shopify, right? Shopify provides financial services to their merchants because there's a gap. And they want to service their customers. And that's why they're providing it. Not because they want to be a bank, but there is a gap in the need that someone else is serving. Clear, we talked about clear bank as well, right? So helping yep. small merchants uh, fund without having to liquidate uh, their equity and, and have a way to grow their business, right? So I think these new financial service organizations that are sort of almost uh, building from scratch or growing as they grow, that's what you got to worry about. Because I honestly think that that's where there's going to be that opportunity that you talked about may not oh. be a financial institution that may take that on. It may be somebody oh, else. And that's agreed. where it's going to be. It's going to push, you know, financial institutions to maybe think differently and, and try to get there. I'm not saying that they don't want to, but maybe someone someone will have to push them. And that's what competition is about. And I think that's why competition is great. Well, I think you're right. I mean, the front end will be that. I mean, like it's, it's like the concept, it's like the, and I'm not sure how successful this is going right now, but the team up of Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway and JP Morgan to basically figure out how to fix their benefits administration issues. As always with Amazon, if they figure it out for themselves, they're going to turn it loose on the rest of the world and it's a better product. Yeah, as you said, Citibank is is the layer behind Google. Goldman Sachs is the layer behind Apple's card, right? These things are, they stand a chance of losing. Here's the thing. The traditional banks stand a chance of losing the customer relationship but still handling the plumbing. They're going to become potentially the telecoms in the future. And I would argue that we're in a better world if that happens because the hyper niche marketing that can happen with smaller players compared to a large institution is is just night and day. The reality is though, it's just, there's a lot of regulation standing in the way of that. And I want to see how that happens in certain countries. In the US, yes, they're more wide open and we're starting to see these experiments start to play out. And yeah, Everybody is intently watching, very much worried about how how that's going to happen in other countries. Yeah, and I think I think that's where I mean, if I were a financial institution tonight and I was running it, I would want to own the customer relationship and have service them with other services through me through my channel, right? So not just providing financial services, but you know things that are important at a point in life or life experience. We talked about mortgage as an example. It could be anything, right? It could be a student. There was an institution in Germany, if I'm not mistaken, forget their name, but they really focused on providing loans to specific industry students. So 
physicians, and so on, mm-hmm. because they figured out that, look, these are the customers of the future. If we help them now, they'll be our customers for life. And that actually worked for them. I know similar initiatives happened in the U.S., but this is before the U.S. initiatives happened with the Stanford case, the case study that was there. But that's where I think if you focus on the customer, then you'd be surprised not only the loyalty of the customer, but also how that can be so different because you're not just focusing on selling them a financial product or a loan, as an example. Oh. I totally get it. You're talking to a guy here who owns every Apple product with the exception of the Mac Pro because goddamn, that's expensive. Pardon me. (laughs) uh, I'm I'm smiling because I have the Mac Pro. (laughs) You have the Mac Pro. I like it. I use it. I am envious. Oh, that that and the and the really and the five thousand dollar monitor. But you know, I'm not I'm not a professional colorist. I really I don't have that. So (laughs) yes, I do have the LG one though. But and I'm I'm currently waiting on my my new MacBook with the M1 processor to come in as we record this. It'll be arrived by the time this is this is aired as well as the uh, HomePod mini. But you know, the reality is, is that, yeah, like when you're in that ecosystem and they make life so easy, it really is easy to buy that next incremental thing because it does that one other function. So I get it. I get it. And when, you know, maybe one day though, I'm less believer that the current institutions will figure it out. I'm more of a believer that the new institutions will figure it out. And eventually the old institutions will provide the infrastructure for those institutions to succeed and everybody benefits. I think that's the far bigger, the Copernican revolution in banking, which I've talked about countless times is I think the bigger plan. So I think, I think you're right. I think that's a definite possibility as a utility provider, right? I think it could be a, it could be a play, right? It could be a play for somebody if they see competition encroaching that they change their model to become that because that could be quite different and interesting. But I mean, like, Consider the concept of embedded finance and how how basically a lot of money won't exist in bank accounts anymore or won't transact through bank accounts the way we normally think of it. Perfect example is um, Google just launched a pilot in Dallas where through Google Maps, you can pay for parking. At no point, that's done right. If it's going through the Google account, at no point are you actually pulling out a card, seeing the brand's name, thinking about the bank account. You're just thinking, I want to pay. And the magical fairies in the background make it happen. So you think about how many other functions in life. I mean, at this point, I have too many credit cards because of business, whatever. But if I had one credit card, every time I went to pay for something, I would just double tap my watch and and tap on the the tap to pay, right? I wouldn't, I don't really care about the brand anymore. So you know, you start thinking about how far this can go down the rabbit hole of just trigger this action here. We're not even going to ask you for a credit card name anymore. Those institutions, brands become just not as important. And I think unless, yes, some larger ones will want to protect that brand and whatever, but infrastructure is the bigger play every time. Yeah. And I mean, you're absolutely dead on. I mean, if you look at Amazon and their whole grocery shopping experience, where they came out with the smart carts and you put things in the smart cart, that automatically knows what's in it, what's out of it. You walk out with your groceries and you don't have to go through a cash register. Oh, I've done it. It's it's freaky. It's weird. It's cool. It's It's freaky. You feel like you did something completely wrong, right? Yeah. And at this point right now, you have to scan in a, a, a QR code off your phone. But with everything going on with the cloud of authentication happening with all these personal devices, we're, it's, it's feasible that in a couple of years, I just walk in and based on the fact that I have my AirPods in my ears, my phone in my pocket and my Apple watch that I've already consented to proximity-based detection and my just walking in, they know who I am. So picture that, I don't even have to go through yeah. a turnstile anymore. I can just grab yeah. what I want and leave. It's yeah. weird. I, it's, it's really <laughs> weird. But you know what? It, it What does it do? It improves the experience. You're not standing in lines to pay groceries anymore. You're not waiting. You you get your stuff, you leave. It's much more efficient and faster, right? So, I mean, that's where the future is, right? I think if you look at COVID, it was a missed opportunity by governments to use technology to for tracing because they could have done such a better job oh with God, all the no technology kidding. that's available, right? And it's a disaster because they didn't take advantage of technology to do that. Otherwise, we could monitor and you know reduce the spread much, much better and easier, especially because everybody has a technological device that they carry for the most part. Yeah. Right? So. yeah, that's, yeah. 
Anyway, before we wrap up, and this has been great, three questions for you. If you had one wish for something you could change in your company or the industry as a whole, what would it be? Get rid of procurement so people can innovate and move forward faster. Oh, are you complaining about how long it takes to get a deal? Wow, that's shocking. No, I no, I'm complaining. <laughs> I'm complaining. I'm complaining about how long it does it take to decide on what you want and getting it done so you can actually drive value. I think it takes too long. I mean, it's just too bureaucratic in my opinion. That has to change if you wanna if you wanna if you wanna innovate and get better and, and do it. Oh faster. yeah. I just had a conversation with a friend of mine at a major bank who was complaining about how long it took to get a simple non- world-changing product launch and it was measured in years not not days not not months it's just there was no excuse for it other than everybody had to sign off and everybody's ego had to basically check it like it happens anyway second piece challenges what's been the biggest challenge in getting the company to where it is today the biggest challenge has been getting franchises to understand this whole concept of what do we mean by when you say customer centric? What do we mean by focusing on the customer? And then actually going and doing it, right? I think that has been the biggest challenge, but it's improving. I'm telling you from the first days, educating and just inspiring people to now actually getting them to do things. There's an evolution and I think it's a great time and we're very happy that it's, it's getting better and better as you day, as days, days go by. Yeah, you should start off the presentation by showing them the Dil- Dilbert comment I mentioned. Um, <laughs> like Google Dilbert customer centric. You'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Excellent. And the last question I have is what excites you the most about what it is you're working on gets you up, up in the morning to keep fighting a good fight? I think it's innovation and, and technology. Things are changing so fast and rapidly that, you know, for me, get up every morning and learn and adopt and get better at it and ensure that our company, our people, our technology gets better at it. So we are staying ahead of the curve. I think that is what excites me. And this, there's so much to that's happening in this space. And it's so interconnected that we just spoke about so many examples. And for me, that that is fun and that's challenging. And that, for me, that's what drives me. Excellent. Thank you so much, Minaz. It's been great. And uh, thank you, Jason. Keep teaching people what customer centricity actually means. <laughs> thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. It was good chatting with you. And you know, I look forward to our next conversation. <laughs> My pleasure. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Minaz. And I hope you found the method in which companies are finding smarter and better ways to actually be customer centric, not just a buzzword. Interesting. And with that, as always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever is your podcast. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca.